welcome back to volume two of some spiritual dialogue with me, Jeremy Howard, and Jackson Washburn. I am all dressed up today, not because um, of this conversation, but because uh, this weekend it is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, and I'm recording my sermon this afternoon for uh, that. And so I usually would participate in a casual Friday of sorts, but today I'm Eastery. Um, very spring looking for our Resurrection Day message. And this will come out on Sunday night. So I guess that works. I look very Eastery. And I'm here in Payson, Utah. And Jackson is very lumberjack looking in Idaho still. Yes, I'm still in Boise. Okay, we're in plaid. Always repping the plaid. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. It's kind of my MO at this point. So I, I don't think I could go without it. It's a part of the brand. I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, our first uh, conversation, Jackson was asking me some questions about uh, Old Testament stuff primarily, but the, the Bible's presentation of the nature of God and its consistency in that. And in this video, I'll be asking Jackson some questions about um, the basically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its uh, ex- exclusivity claim that they are the one true church, and kind of getting to the root of that, where it came from, and where the church is now with that. And so, um, if you're ready, we can just jump in this time. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, um, again, these questions we send to each other ahead of time, so we have time to prep to give a full answer. And uh, this is the first question I sent over to Jackson. Uh, according to historical documentation and you know, perhaps inference also based on uh, observing history and and kind of understanding what was going on in history. What did Joseph Smith believe about Protestant church history when he began to declare the start of the restored church? Whenever he uh, launched this movement, what was his view of the Protestant church at that time? Um, How can we understand that from history? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question um, because it, it sets the context well uh, for understanding where Joseph Smith was coming from. Um, so Joseph Smith um, grew up uh, in Jacksonian America, um, and he, he lived essentially kind of frontier, um, lived in uh, Vermont, um, moved to New York. Um, and so, you know, he, he lived in essentially the, the eastern states as we would know them. Um, but back then it was, you know, a lot, uh, a lot less developed. Um, and so his, his family, um, by trade, uh, engaged in, in farming and different land cultivation. Um, and so that, that was essentially the, the upbringing that Joseph Smith had, uh, one that was rather backwoods, um, that was, uh, um, within the, what's known as the burned over district. Um, so uh, a region of the United States that was uh, particularly uh, consumed um, with uh, religious uh, revivalism uh, during the, the Second Great Awakening. And um, not only that, but just Jacksonian America, um, the, the Bible was deeply encultured into uh, the uh, American spirit or, or culture, right, uh, at the time. And so that's something that uh, Joseph Smith would have been familiar with, um, if not, uh, you know, directly personally uh, through like intensive reading. Um, it was so encultured that, you know, phrases and 
uh, motifs uh, were very prolific. Um, and, and so that was a, a common part of Joseph's environment. Now, um, be, with that in mind, I, I think uh, it, it doesn't appear that Joseph Smith had an understanding or knowledge of like uh, specific uh, Protestant church history or like, let, let's say like a technical understanding of history, right? He was by no means a, a historian. Um, and so his understanding uh, would have been limited to uh, both his surrounding environment to perhaps, you know, maybe some books or readings that he came across um, or his, uh, his experiences with different Protestant churches at the time. So I, I don't think it can be said that, uh, you know, his knowledge really exceeded, exceeded that of what we would expect uh, from someone living in the American frontier at that time um, in that kind of like more rural uh, uh, landscape. Um, but, uh, we do know, uh, given his own personal statements, uh, documents and, uh, uh, texts that he produced, uh, that he did have some unique ways of understanding, um, both, uh, Christian Protestantism, uh, but also traditional Christianity as a whole. So it's important to understand that during this time period, uh, we see this movement um, both before and during uh, called Christian primitivism, right? Where you have this desire uh, within uh, the Protestant Reformation to get back to primitive Christianity, this belief that um, the, you know, throughout Christian history, there's been these additions or, um, or uh, subtractions from the original Christian church as, as Christ and his apostles established, um, which led to a need for uh, a reformation um, and in some people's views, a restoration uh, that we needed to go back to that primitive Christianity to get the real, uh, the real stuff that uh, Jesus and the new Testament taught. So um, Joseph Smith's own family background uh, Christian primitivism was an important part of it. Uh, his maternal uncle uh, named Jason Mack, uh, he was a Christian primitivist. Um, and his father, Joseph Smith Sr., also appears to have been a Christian primitivist or, or seeker, as they were called. Um, uh, throughout his life, he refused to uh, join any of the existing Christian churches uh, because he sought a return to the original church. Um, of course, Joseph Smith Sr. eventually joins the church that Joseph Smith founds. Um, but that's kind of the, the familial environment that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with. Um, and uh, with, with Christian uh, primitivism, um, you essentially have this quest to restore original Christianity. So during this time period, we have several like very successful denominations, um, such as the Baptists, and the Methodists, who uh, very much are attempting to restore this like early pristine Christianity. Um, and uh, we also have the Seventh-day Adventists um, uh, making attempts to do so as well. The, the 19th century, um, I've talked to various uh, evangelicals or Protestants today, um, and, and many of them will say that uh, the 19th century, especially in America, uh, was a time of, of heresy, let's say, 
that uh, hadn't been seen since, uh, you know, let's say like around the, the Council of Nicaea or something like that. Like uh, during this time, we have an explosion of Christian movements uh, that differ from one another in what they're doing, uh, what they see as uh, perhaps a restoration of, you know, the key elements of early Christianity. Mormonism is just one of these movements. Um, but uh, um, Christian primitivism is also epitomized by like the Stone Campbell uh, movement. Um, so like Alexander Campbell. Um, and uh, they they have uh, their their views of Christian primitivism are so, mm, let's say, intense uh, that uh, they even, you know, really reject uh, kind of the influence of the, of the Old Testament or see it as largely irrelevant. It's the New Testament that they're primarily uh, concerned with. Um, so this is, this is what Joseph Smith is, uh, is surrounded by. Um, these competing denominations um, that have far less of, a, of an emphasis on like ecumenical uh, relationships than we might find today. Um, and where many of them are competing to establish themselves as uh, the, the authentic Christianity, the, you know, uh, replicating the original Christianity. And uh, there's plenty of uh, religious revivalism uh, going on as well uh, that Joseph Smith would have had uh, exposure to both uh, in the larger surrounding area, but then also in the Palmyra Manchester area. Um, and uh, uh, from his own accounts, this is this was disturbing to Joseph Smith. Um, he, he very much felt that uh, uh, in his quest for kind of securing personal salvation or, or seeking it out, um, that uh, he experienced confusion as to which of all these Christian sects uh, accurately uh, or, or um, like actually would uh, allow him to acquire such. Um, which of them taught, uh, you know, the original uh, Christian gospel or, or, you know, most directly paralleled the, the New Testament church. Um, so I, I imagine for our listeners, the, the story of, of Joseph Smith um, being a young boy, uh, 14 years of age, going out into the woods after being impacted by uh, several verses of scripture, the chief one being James 1.5, uh, and feeling that after this time of talking to pastors, of attending different churches, of listening to what they had to say, um, that he, you know, ultimately had to just um, appeal to God directly, um, that because all of them were drawing on the Bible to support themselves, uh, the Bible um, in and of itself uh, was an insufficient means of answering that question for Joseph. And so uh, he, he sought uh, God in prayer. And um, from, from his earliest uh, uh, first vision uh, account, um, this is very much framed as, a, as a, uh, an act of seeking personal salvation, of uh, finding redemption. Um, it's later in his life where he places a, a heavier emphasis on um, the that that this included or or was primarily a search to know which of all the churches was true. Um, the canonized account in uh, the LDS Standard Works, um, written in 1838, uh, you know, very much uh, strongly reflects a a view of 
Joseph Smith's first vision as being a means by which he learned which of all the churches was true, if none of them were. Um, so uh, with that in mind, I, I think that's kind of the best that we can understand Joseph Smith's view of uh, Protestant church history. Um, you know, he would be familiar with the, the Reformation. Um, he would likely have been familiar with uh, how the Reformation was a break off uh, from the Catholic church. Um, and uh, the thing was, there weren't many Catholics in America at the time, uh, not nearly to the extent today. And so um, it's, uh, you know, I, I imagine his direct exposure to Catholicism or, or even Orthodox Christianity would be minimal, if at all. Um, but uh, yeah, he was very much steeped in this, this Protestant environment that included this element of restorationism or Christian primitivism. Um, and because of that, it seems uh, even going into uh, his first vision experience, as he claims it, uh, he already had kind of deep uh, concerns or, or even doubts that any of the Christian churches any of the Protestant churches that he would have been familiar with uh, uh, fully represented the original uh, Christian church. Um, so uh, we can also see uh, some more views on this um, in his, uh, through like some of his earliest publications or writings or revelations. Um, so there's one in particular, um, when he talks about establishing a church, this is recorded in 1829, but it's not published until 1833. Um, this, this appears in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and it's uh, uh, essentially, um, it, it pulls a lot from language of, uh, of John the Revelator, um, where uh, he, he says that, quote, beginning of the rising up and coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. Um, this church I called forth out of the wilderness. Um, and then, quote, uh, thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Um, essentially, this, uh, he interprets language from the book of Revelation in such a way uh, that rather than seeing the church as a, a uh, fully invisible or non-existent, um, you have this, uh, these original teachings over time from the original Christian church uh, going in, you know, being suppressed or um, uh, essentially being in exile in ways. Um, they, they might be corrupted, they might uh, be present in this vein of Christianity or this vein of Christianity, um, but there's this you know, if we take this original core, it fragments, right, over time. Um, and, and so Joseph Smith is unique in this particular way that he interprets um, the, the, the church as being one in the wilderness um, rather than one that's uh, completely non-existent. Um, and there's other parts of his early revelations where language is used that uh, casts um, you know, also perhaps like a, a more charitable or softer light to um, Christianity at the time uh, where Joseph Smith is told about, um, you know, wise men or, or men of God that, that he doesn't um, even know of, uh, but that are still present. Um, 
it, it's interesting um, when we review claims of exclusivism with uh, some of the, this language used, um, because certainly Joseph Smith uh, saw uh, things like laws and ordinances, uh, the authority, for instance, to perform uh, saving ordinances is something that was lost uh, during what he sees as, uh, and claims was a great apostasy that took place in Christendom. Um, but that doesn't preclude Christianity as a whole as, uh, you know, still having valid forms of, uh, you know, perhaps miracles or manifestations of faith or prayer or things like that. Um, but, but definitely his conception of apostasy early on uh, primarily revolves around this idea that there was an original authority given from Christ to his apostles and that apostolic authority was lost uh, following the death of the apostles or, or shortly thereafter. Um, and that authority was essential for uh, carrying out uh, various uh, religious um, rituals, sacraments, uh, or as he terms them, ordinances. Um, I, I think I'll stop there for now, um, but I'm happy to you know, hear any of your reactions to that or um, you know, kind of how... I don't know wherever you'd like to take it. Yeah. Um, thanks. Um, so what's your evaluation, I guess, of his initial definition of what God's, God's religion on earth should look like, um, you know, before he was spurred on to ask God, which, which church is true. He had some sort of a presupposition there that there would be one, true universal church on earth. And so uh, that presupposition, where did it come from? I, I know you, you touched on that a little bit, but maybe explain in a little more detail if you can, where that presupposition that he had about that came from in your evaluation of it. Yeah, I imagine that was uh, uh, the, the product of his environment, both along the lines of Christian primitivism, um, that there was a, such thing as an original church that looked a certain way, believed a certain way, practiced a certain way, and that those things together um, have not been preserved over time um, and, and not in the denominations or sects that Joseph Smith would have been uh, familiar with. So he, he does that. Yeah. I, I, um, just kind of to add to it, I mean, in his time with the Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians, kind of like probably the big three that existed okay. there, there was a level of understanding among them that other Christians not in their denomination would still go to heaven. You know, that there wasn't like the Baptists were preaching. You must be Baptist in order to be saved or Methodists or Presbyterians, though there might've been um, smaller pockets of that going on for people who were super fired up about their denomination. I think historically speaking, we can, we can see that there's a recognition of uh you know, primary and secondary issues where it seems like okay. from the on, from the outset, Joseph Smith didn't pick up on that because he was wanting to know which denomination was true. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, I, I think um, that's certainly been something that uh, has been, I, I've seen emphasized a lot in contemporary Christianity um, among those uh, specific uh, denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, that um, there, there's this view of, you know, the more uh, universal uh, church in Christ, even if there is um, uh, differences in secondary and tertiary issues. But I do think that at this time, 
we would observe higher rates of those denominations or churches belonging to them uh, claiming that uh, theirs was the the, the legitimate uh, expression of Christianity and even condemning others uh, to to hell or you know being a lot more exclusive in that view of uh, what constituted uh, Christ's uh, church. Um, you know, uh, we also have the, the historical tensions of, of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, and that's another huge point uh, that, upon which denominations uh, might see each other as outside of, uh, of um, the, the collective uh, Christian uh, church or, or body of Christ. Um, one thing that's interesting with Joseph Smith um, is that uh, he, he didn't really use the term Calvinism. Um, Presbyterianism was more of the, the shorthand uh, for expressing uh, Reformed theology. Um, but uh, after his first vision in the 1838 account that's canonized, um, he comes home and, you know, he's, he, he, he describes himself as being like distressed or, or, you know, pretty, pretty impacted by what just happened. And, you know, maybe he's like leaning up against the fireplace or something. And his mom asks him, you know, what's up? You know, what, what's going on? Because uh, she can see that something's off. And uh, he, he recounts that he says, you know, essentially like, oh, never mind, mother. I just learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true, right? Which I, I find to be actually kind of humorous, uh, kind of like an understatement, right? Um, uh, where, you know, you have claims of seeing deity, right? And having this remarkable vision. Um, and uh, the first thing that he says to his mom is essentially, uh, you know, I got my answer. I don't think Calvinism is, is true. She was Presbyterian at the time. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense why, you know, personally, uh, how that was, uh, um, uh, relevant to her. Uh, but I, I still find that remark just a little bit, uh, um, maybe flippant or, or uh, kind of an understatement for, for the, you know, the grounds of what just, uh, what he claims just took place. Uh, but, but yes, I, I, I do think in his life, um, specifically along the lines of Calvinism versus Arminianism, that was a very big um, divide. Um, and I've often described Mormonism as being hyper Arminian in many respects. If we were to take the, the acronym TULIP, I'm pretty sure that Mormonism would take perhaps the exact opposite stance on every single one yeah. of those letters. Uh, and Joseph Smith himself says, uh, describes himself in his early life as being partial to the Methodist sect. Um, he, he was never an official member, um, although he did uh, attend in different ways. Um, but uh, it was something that he was partial to. And scholars of religion have observed ways in which Methodism has uh uh, historically impacted Mormonism, right? Some of the, the ways in which Joseph Smith organizes his church or espouses his early theology uh, have parallels within Methodism. Um, but yes, I, I, I essentially, I, I, I just want to emphasize that I do think that it was more common for churches back then to be a bit more exclusive with each other, even within Christendom. I don't doubt that there were like theologians or, or individuals or, or even church communities uh, that, that did espouse a, a more perhaps inclusive or universal view uh, that you've described. Uh, one that does place uh, uh, a distinction on these secondary and tertiary issues. 
But I do think that uh, that kind of exclusivism, such as I've described, um, uh, I, I don't know if I would be comfortable historically describing that as, as purely a misunderstanding on Joseph's part. Um, I, if it is a misunderstanding, I think it's one that uh, he was encultured with or that he observed from his surrounding religious environment uh, during, during this revivalism time. Because the, the, the whole point of the revivalism, uh, you had these circuits or you know, groups of churches or ministers that would travel and specifically try to win converts to their denomination, uh, often attacking other denominations, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I think Christianity was, American Christianity was just a bit different at this time and, and how it was understood and expressed. Yeah, um, there would be an interesting study to do because there are some uh, one-off instances that I know of in history, like um, John Wesley, uh, mm-hmm. founder of Methodism and George Whitfield, you know, they eventually decided they couldn't do ministry together because of Calvinism. Yeah. Uh, yet I don't think either one of them uh, proclaimed the other one to be anathema either. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it would be, it would be an interesting study. Um, you, you've mentioned the difference between restoration and reformation, which mm-hmm. is critical because yeah. uh, obviously Joseph Smith wasn't trying to reform anything. He was trying to restore something uh, yeah. with, I mean, I guess, would you agree that that means he believed, well, I, I guess it's part and parcel to Mormon theology. He believed the church was just gone completely. Uh, yes. In the sense of uh, like the, the authority to uh, officiate over these ordinances or sacraments, um, he did believe that that was gone um, completely. Although Joseph Smith would have recognized, um, you know, the, uh, there still would have been truth in the existing sects or denominations of Christianity, albeit in fragmented forms. And so, I mean, I think about his initial statements, um, you know, like the real famous one from his history that God answered him, his prayer saying that he should join none of them. They're all wrong. The personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his mm-hmm. sight, uh, that those professors were all corrupt that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um, they teach the doctrines and commandments of men. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Uh, those are really strong statements. And, I agree. Um, do, do you think he even saw anything in them that was worth keeping? I mean, you, you mentioned that he saw that there was some truth, but that statement is just so sweeping and strong against it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, I think it's important to, so there's four uh, firsthand uh, first vision accounts from Joseph Smith. Um, and then there's various secondhand ones as well. Um, and so there's one in 1832, 1835, 1838, which is the one that you just read from. And I believe another one in uh, uh, 1840, uh, if not 1842 or something. And the one um, I just read from is on the church's the, site. Yeah, that's the, that's the canonized account. Um so that, that's included in the standard works. Um, and uh, so that's been the one that's um, impacted uh, the Latter-day Saint narrative about Joseph Smith's first vision and the Christian apostasy uh, the most. Um, uh, you know, that, that's very safe to say. Um, the immediate uh, context out of which that um, text was written um, was right after uh right in the same time that Joseph Smith had spent several months imprisoned in Liberty jail. Um, This is also going on uh, around the time of the the Missouri war. 
uh, where the Saints, the Latter-day Saints were driven out of Missouri. They were killed. They were persecuted. Um, they were suffering uh, uh, many afflictions. Um, and so there was active conflicts between the Mormons and the Missourians at this time. And so, uh, th- yeah, this was a period of uh, persecution in the early LDS history that hadn't been uh, experienced before um, and was super significant. And so Joseph Smith, right off the bat in this, uh, in this history that he writes, um, recognizes uh, the, the many persecutions that he suffered and how he wants to give a full account. But um, I, I think that the lens of persecution is very important to see the, how, uh, how persecution impacts and influences the language that Joseph Smith uses in describing both his early upbringing, his first vision experience, and, and uh, um, uh, his experiences since. Uh, because that's very much the driving theme, uh, I would say, in that in the 1838 account. Later, so there's another first vision account that he writes after the 1838 account, um, where some of these harsher statements, like you said, uh, creeds are an abomination, you know, things like that. Um, he um, those are softened, um, and the the same kind of like harsh language isn't used. And in his earlier first vision accounts. Uh, that language isn't used uh, to the same degree either. So I do think the the 1838 account is unique in kind of the level, uh, the intensity of rhetoric that it uses. Um, I think that can be historically understood given the context. Um, and so, um, you know, Latter-day Saints themselves might debate, you know, uh, is this meant to reflect uh, verbatim statements uh, or, you know, should we understand persecution as very much driving or intensifying uh, the way that this first vision experience is uh, recounted by Joseph Smith. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that's more or less you know what I how I approach the 1838 account and how I understand it. Um, I think um, it, it's unique in the intensity of language that it uses. And like I said previously, uh, Joseph Smith um, not just uh, he didn't just pull from Methodism uh, often in his formation of the early Latter-day Saint church. Um, uh, but throughout his life, uh, he was, uh, and I'll speak to this uh, later as well in, in our discussion, uh, but Joseph Smith was remarkably open to pulling from, you know, various sources of truth uh, that he saw in different uh, places, whether it's Methodism whether it's uh, different aspects of, of Christianity, whether it's Freemasonry, whether it's what he believes, you know, uh, from Egyptian papyri or antiquity. Um, he seems to be very uh, dynamic in his uh, effort throughout his life to pull truth from various sources. And so I do think that uh, in uh, other places where he talks about Christianity, um, there's certainly levels of critique there. Uh, there's certainly times in which he expresses disagreement or expresses this is, you know, where I believe that they have gone apostate or something like that. But then there's plenty of other places where he affirms the truth that they do have, and he's actually quite charitable to them. So um, what, what do you think the implications are of the church canonizing the strongest one? Yeah, um, like I said, that's uh, very much... Uh, impacted the narrative that we uh, tell ourselves internally in the church, right? It's used in the missionary discussions. 
Um, and um, so this, this persecution lens has persisted uh, long after Latter-day Saints have actually been persecuted, right? Uh, where uh, not only do we remember... Now they run a whole state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, not only do we remember our days in Missouri, right, uh, and very much feel rooted and uh, like that's a key part of our history, uh, but also, you know, having to cross the plains and the persecution suffered afterwards. Um, you know, since since Utah became a state, Latter Day Saints haven't been physically persecuted to anywhere near the same extent that uh, happened in early LDS history. And yet that's such an important part of our internal narrative. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to say that I, I think that's wrong. Uh, I do think that's an, an important part of our, of our narrative. Um, but uh, some, sometimes that can manifest itself in such a, uh, uh, either an exaggerated or overemphasized way uh, that we run the risk of engaging in a persecution complex, right? Uh, where you know, let, let's say it exchanges with Christians today, right? Uh, mm -hmm. If Christians are witnessing outside of Mormon temples or pageants or conferences, um, Latter-day Saints might internally uh, link those Christians with the Christians of uh, early LDS history. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very safe to say that, you know, um, uh, they should not be seen as one-to-one -one equivalents, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a huge difference from you know, engaging in, in evangelism versus, you know, physical persecution, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't want to unnecessarily, uh, you know, belabor the point, but maybe a couple quick follow-up questions on this one again, before moving to the next yeah. one. Um, I mean, with the church taking that, the 1838 statement with that language in it, do you, because from a Christian perspective, we view, you know, scripture as being inspired. Scripture is God breathed. Yeah. Therefore, it has authority. And mm -hmm. from more of a, a universal church perspective that the Roman Catholics have and Latter-day Saints have and others, the church has the authority to deem what literature has authority, basically. And by yeah. the church, the church canonized that 1838 edition. So is, do you see that as God then? saying that that is the most accurate articulation of uh, Christianity during the 1800s? Uh, are you asking me if I think that the 1838 account, if that's the most like accurate first edition account? From, yeah, or? from God's perspective. Is God then saying through the authority in the church that that statement is the most accurate articulation? No, I, 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 I personally, and I think Mormon, Mormonism in general would take a different approach to scripture. Um, you know, certainly uh, themes of authority and of inspiration are there. Um, and so I don't want to downplay that, but they're certainly not present in, to the same extent that it would be for uh, uh, Protestants or, or other Christians. Um, I, I think the 1838 account um, or, or the Mormon approach to scripture uh, would perhaps place a higher emphasis on uh, what, it, you know, what is the context through which we uh, even recognize this as scripture? Um, because Mormonism has this idea of canonized scripture, but then also uncanonized scripture, that uh, scripture is, uh, is inspired by God, uh, but that doesn't carry the belief of inerrancy or infallibility, uh, such as present in uh, Protestantism. 
Um, and so with this first vision account, um, the other first vision accounts, uh, I, I think are growing in their significance and in their importance as we've, uh, turned back to them. Um, and as we have, uh, uh, tried to see what insights we can glean from them as well. Um, when it comes to the formation of the canon, uh, that's very much like a communal act within Mormonism, uh, where not just uh, from a top-down type uh, type approach, but also from a bottom-up. Um, these texts that are historically significant to us um, can be elevated to the level of canon uh, when agreed upon by both uh, the leaders of the church and the laity. Um, uh, you know, often the leaders of the church will propose that something is added to the canon. And then the church members themselves are able to uh, sustain that move and then include it into the canon. So while I do think that the canon it has special significance within the LDS church or the LDS tradition, um, it doesn't preclude other things from being seen as inspired or scriptural either. Uh, the canon um, in many ways uh, just recognizes which texts of scripture, which historical documents, have such a, uh, an impact on us uh, collectively uh, so as to, to, to merit like a special place in our sacred history. Um, so like I said, because this was brought to the canon, because this was an official uh, uh, history of the church that Joseph Smith was claiming to write at the time. Um, the other first vision accounts, uh, one of them is present in a personal journal. One of them is, you know, written to an individual, you know, um, this was this one in particular, Joseph Smith meant to be published and like officially circulated, right? And so I, I do think that it carries that distinction as opposed to the others. Um, but I think Latter-day Saints are increasingly looking to the other accounts to glean insights and value in understanding what Joseph Smith, how he understood his first vision, uh, how he understood his uh, early religious formation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, personally, again, I because of these other accounts, I don't think I would go to the 1838 account, and even though it's canonized, say, this represents the verbatim uh, word of God. Um, and, uh, you know, personally, because of that persecution lens, I, I don't know if uh, in Joseph Smith's, uh, you know, if there's any way that we can get to what the most likely or uh, earliest uh, first vision experience is, um, I, I imagine that it didn't have that same level of, uh, of persecution rhetoric in it. Um, and uh, so I, I imagine that it would probably have been toned down um, if that was his experience, because that's how it's reflected in the other accounts. And so I, I think when it comes to the intensity of the rhetoric, the 1838 account is the exception rather than the norm in comparison to the, the ways that Joseph Smith generally described it. Okay. Um, last follow-up question on that. I mean, would you say it's accurate that Joseph Smith viewed the uh, church being um, a one true church model being part and parcel to the gospel? Um, did he see, did he connect those two things even from the beginning um, that if you are going to have the fullness of the gospel, you have to have the fullness of a restored one true universal church. 
Yeah, I'm think I'm thinking so. Um, just because he he tied uh, the concept of of church and and also the gospel with these concepts of of authority of of uh, ordinances and and the authority to preside over various sacraments and rituals. Um, and so I, I I do think that uh, very early on we we see a a kind of a more exclusive hierarchy, uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy being proposed by Joseph Smith. Um, and that seems to be integral to the model that he sustained throughout his life. It developed, of course, and, you know, the, the, uh, his ecclesio- ecclesiology developed over time and changed. And so it was by no means static. But I do think uh, that, that kind of exclusive uh, concept of, of priesthood authority um, was, uh, was a key part of it. Um, and, and that's why Joseph Smith, took such measures to uh, promote and foster unity within his Mormon restoration movement. Um, I, I, I also want to point out that uh, uh, even though this, this early Mormon restoration movement uh, was very much defined by uh, its Christian primitivism, its drive towards establishing the original Christian church, um, that uh, we can't just purely understand it on those terms either. Uh, there, it also espoused elements of a, of a kind of like Hebraic primitivism where Joseph Smith was also looking to uh, the Old Testament to restore various practices and religious beliefs and things uh, from it. And so that's one way in which his primitivism uh, deferred from his contemporaries, uh, whereas, you know, Alexander Campbell or, or others might have been more purely interested in, you know, how do we uh, replicate the New Testament church? Joseph Smith drew generously as well from the Old Testament and, you know, brought back various offices or practices or concepts. Um, And this was part of his larger understanding of what he termed the restoration of all things or the restitution of all things. Um, And so that's why he wasn't just, you know, drawing from the New Testament uh, he was also drawing from the Old Testament, but then also drawing from other sources of truth as he saw them. Um, so it was, it was uh, a lot more expansive than just a, a pure Christian primitivist mm-hmm. movement, although those elements were certainly there.